Welcome to tape number three of Truth, Victory Over Error, or the True Principles of the Christian Religion by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Truth's Victory Over Error by David Dixon, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ continuing our reading of Truth's Victory Over Error by David Dixon, chapter 5 of Providence, question 1. Doth God uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, their actions, and all things from the greatest even to the least? Yes, Hebrews 1.3, Daniel 34, verse 35, Psalm 135, verse 6, Acts 17, verses 25, 26, and 28, Job 38, 39, 40, 41. Well then, do not the Sassanians, Arminians, and that great philosopher Durandus, D-U-R-A-N-D-U-S, with others called the Epicureans, err, who deny that God preserves all things immediately, to be the immediate cause of all things which fall out, to govern all things which are contingent, and the free acts of the will of man and evil and evil actions? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because it is God that worketh all in all. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 5 and 6. Second, because he worketh all things according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1, 11. Third, because of him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11.36 Question 2. Doth the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men and not by a bare permission but such as have joined with it a most wise and powerful bound, bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends? Yes. Romans 11, verses 32, 33, and 34. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, and 1 Kings 21, verses 22 and 23. 1 Chronicles 10, verses 4, 13, and 14. 2 Samuel 16, verse 10. Acts 14, 16. Psalm 74, verse 10. 2 Kings 19, 19, 28. And Genesis 50, verse 20. Well then, do not the Lutherans, Papists, Arminians, and Socinians err? who maintain that the Lord concurs only to sinful actions by a bare, naked, and idle permission? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the scripture says God blinds their eyes and hardens their hearts, even actively and judicially. John 12.40, Exodus 7.3, Deuteronomy 2.30, Romans 9.18. Second, because God is said to punish one sin with another. Romans 1, verses 24, 26, and 28. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. Third, from the practice of Job and David, who, when they were afflicted and persecuted, looked to God and took it patiently. Job 1, 21. Question 3. 
Doth the sinfulness of the action proceed only from the creature and not from God? I answer from the creature only, James 1, verses 13 and 14 and 17, 1 John 2:16 and Psalm 50, verse 21. Well then, do not the libertines err who affirm God without blasphemy, be it spoken to be the author and cause of all sin? Yes, by what reason are they confuted? From David's testimony, Psalm 5, verse 4. Second, from Moses' testimony, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Third, from Daniel's testimony, Daniel 9, verse 4. Fourth, from the testimony of James, James 1, verse 13. Fifth, from the testimony of John, 1 John 2, 16. And 1, verse 5. Sixth, from the testimony of Paul, Romans 3, verses 3, 4, and 5. Seventh, from the testimony of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1, 13. From the reason, because God is, in the highest degree, essentially and infinitely holy and good, and therefore pure and free from every spot and blemish. Isaiah 6, verse 3, Psalm 78, verse 41, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Leviticus 11, verse 44. 2. Because God is absolutely perfect and therefore he cannot fail or be deficient in working. 3. Because God is the judge of the world. He is the forbidder, the hater, and revenger of all sin and unrighteousness as contrary to his holy nature and law. Exodus 20, Romans 3, verses 5 and 9, Genesis 18, verse 25, Romans 1, 17, and Psalm 5, verse 4. 4. Because by his own most absolute and most supreme dominion, sovereignty, and infinite perfection, he is in and of himself above the law whatsoever, and under the command of none in heaven or in earth. Chapter 6 Concerning the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. Question 1 is the guilt of the sin of our parents imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation yes Romans 5 verses 12 and 15 to 20 1 Corinthians 15 verses 21 and 22 and 45 and 49 Psalm 51 verse 5 Genesis 5 verse 3, Job 14, verse 4, and 15, verse 4. That's Job 15, verse 4. Well then, do not the Pelagians and late Anabaptists, Quakers, and Sicinians err who deny original sin inherent? Yes. Do not likewise the Dominicans, Franciscans, and Jesuits err who maintain the Virgin Mary not to be conceived in original sin? Yes. Does not lately a certain ringleader of the Quakers err who maintains that to infants this original sin is not imputed until by actual sin they join themselves to it? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, from that well-known place of Scripture, Romans 5, which is the very fear, excuse me, feet and foundation of this doctrine of original sin. Second, because unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 3. Third, because all men, by nature and birth, are the children of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Fourth, because whatever is born of the flesh is fleshly. John 3, 6. And who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Job 14, verse 4. And Job 15, verse 14. Fifth, because all the thoughts and imaginations of the heart of man, vis-a-vis of the natural and unregenerate man, are evil continually. Genesis 6, verse 5. 6. Because David confesses that he was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. Psalm 51, verse 5. 7. Because infants that are guilty of no actual transgression need a remedy against sin, vis-a-vis absolution by the blood of Christ 
a seal whereof was given according to God's institution under the law to infants, namely circumcision, to which baptism under the gospel succeeds, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Romans 2, verse 29, Acts 22, verse 19, Mark 1, verse 4, Colossians 2, verse 12, Genesis 17, verse 12, Matthew 28, verse 16. 8. Because all the elect among whom are infants, Matthew 18, verse 6, Mark 9:42, are redeemed by Christ and are set at liberty from slavery, freed from the fault and penal punishment, John 1, verse 29, and John 10, verse 15, 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Ninth, because infants are liable to death and other miseries and calamities which are the wages and punishment of sin. Romans 4, verse 23, and Genesis 3, verse 19. Question 2. Is this corruption of nature, albeit pardoned and mortified through Christ in some measure in the regenerate, both itself and all the motives thereof, truly and properly sin? Yes. Romans 7, verse 5, 7, and 8, and 25. Galatians 5, 17. Well then, do not the Papists, Sicinians, and Arminians err who maintain that concupiscence or lust and the first motions thereof, which have not gotten the consent of the will, are not properly and truly sin? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because they are forbidden by the moral and natural law in the Tenth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17, Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, Romans 7, verse 7. Second, because Paul, speaking of himself, while unregenerate, calleth concupiscence and lust, of which the controversy is oftentimes sin and evil, Romans 7, verses 5 and 6. Third, because it is a great part of the old man which he must lay down and must be mortified, Colossians 3, verses 5, 6, and 7, and Ephesians 4, verse 22. Question 3. Does every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, bring in its own nature guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and made subject to death with all the miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal? Yes. 1 John 3, verse 4, Romans 2, 15, and Romans 3, 9, and 19. Ephesians 2, verse 3, Galatians 3, verse 10, Romans 6, verse 23, Ephesians 4, verse 18, Romans 8, verse 20, Lamentations 3, 20, 39, excuse me, Matthew 25, verse 41, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Well then, do not many of the papists err who maintain that all sins are not contrary to the law of God, nor transgressions thereof? Yes. Do not all papists err who deny every sin to be immortal or to, to deserve eternal punishment? Yes. Lastly, do not the Sicinians err who deny that any sin can deserve eternal punishment? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because all sins deserve eternal death. Romans 4, verse 23. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, Romans 8, verse 6 and 13. Second, because every sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3, verse 4. Third, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, James 2, verse 10 and 11. And therefore he deserves eternal punishment. Fourth, because those sins of infirmity and ignorance which the saints are subject to and which the papists call venial sins will not suffer them to stand in judgment before God, nor can the saints be justified from them by faith and therefore in strict justice they merit and deserve hell. Psalm 143, verse 2 and one, Psalm 130, verses 3, 4, and 8. Fifth, because God commanded believers under the law to offer typical sacrifices for making a propitiation for such sins, and Christ did really by his own precious blood purge them away. 
for by no less price could they be purged, he being made a curse for them, that he might liberate those from the curse of the law, which they had deserved for such sins as well as for others. Leviticus 4, verses 2, 3, and 14, 15, 20, 22, 24, and 31. Leviticus 5, verses 17 and 18. Galatians 3, verse 13. Hebrews 10, verses 10, 12, and 14. Hebrews 9, verses 14 and 22. 1 John 1, verses 7 and 9. Ephesians 5, verses 25, 26, and 27. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. 6. Because every sin is against the supremest lawgiver, against his holiness and goodness, against his infinite majesty, and floweth from a formal or virtual contempt of God, and therefore the least sin cannot be cannot but deserve God's wrath and curse eternally. James 2.10 and 11, Leviticus 10 verse 3, and Leviticus 11 verses 44 and 45, 1 John 3, verse 4, and Ephesians 5, verse 6. Chapter 7 Of God's Covenant with Man Question 1. Did all these sacrifices and other types and ordinances by which the covenant of grace was administered before our Savior's, Savior's incarnation adumbrate and foresignify Christ to come? Yes. Hebrews 8, verse 9 and 10th chapters Romans 4 verse 11 Colossians 2 11 and 12 and 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 Well then do not the Sassinians err who maintain that the legal sacrifices did not signify the expiatory sacrifice of Christ neither were types nor figures of it but that those sacrifices which the Jews offer for sin did really and in very deed purge away all the sins for which they were offered? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? They, there are here two parts to be considered. First, the negative, that the legal sacrifices did not signify. The second, the affirmative, that they did truly make a real expiation and atonement. The first is evidently confuted from Scripture testimonies. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Hebrews 10 verse 4 The apostle calls here these legal sacrifices a shadow and Hebrews 9 9 he calls them a figure and verse 24 he calls them an antitype. The figures of the true, in Colossians 2, verse 17, he calls them a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ, which is nothing else, but that the thing signified is of Christ. That is to say, fulfilled in Christ. For all the shadows of the Old Testament had a respect to Christ and his benefits, by whose coming they also have an end. In John 1, verse 17, it is said that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. By grace, understand the grace of redemption from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, and of adoption for children, John 1.12, and Romans 8.15. By truth, understand the fulfilling both of the promises, 2 Corinthians 1.20, and of the ceremonies and types, Colossians 2.17. For this cause, the apostles have always pressed the abrogation of the legal rites and ceremonies because the truth being exhibited by the coming of the antitype, the shadow of the type ought deservedly to cease and be no more, according to that of Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. The second part is likewise evidently confuted, namely that the legal sacrifices did truly and really purge away all sins for which they were offered first. Because the apostle says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4. Second, because those sacrifices were not able to make him that did the service perfect, Hebrews 9 9. Third, because these legal sacrifices did leave the sins of such as offered unexpiated until they were purged away by the death and blood of Christ, Hebrews 9 verse 15. 
Fourth, because the sins of believers under the Old Testament were forgiven in pardon after the same manner that our sins under the New Testament are pardoned. Acts 15, verse 11. Question 2. Was the administration of the covenant under the Old Testament sufficient for the time and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in the faith of the promised Messiah, by whom they had a full remission of sins and eternal salvation? Yes, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1, 3, and 4, Hebrews 9, excuse me, 11, verse 13, and Hebrews 8, 56, excuse me, John 8, 56. Well then, do not the Sassinians err who maintain that life eternal under the Old Testament was never promised to the believers of that time, neither had they any promise to expect it from God? Yes, by what reasons are they confuted? First, because there are promises extant in the Old Testament of life eternal. Isaiah 45, verse 17, where it is said, Israel shall be saved with an everlasting salvation. See Daniel 12, verse 2. Second, because the fathers under the Old Testament believed and expected life eternal, as Job 19, 25, and 26, and David in Psalm 17, verse 15, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of these waited for eternal life. Hebrews 11, verses 9 to 10. Third, because some at that time were put into actual possession of it, as Enoch, Hebrews 11, 5, so was Elijah taken up into heaven and put into actual possession likewise. 2 Kings 2, verses 11 and 5. Fourth, because the scriptures of the Old Testament pointeth forth the way to eternal life, as Christ witnesses, John 5:39 and Paul, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Fifth, because believers under the Old Testament were most happy, Psalm 144, verse 19. Sixth, because temporal good things were to them pledges of spiritual good things and life eternal, Hebrews 11, verses 8 and 9. Question three, are the two covenants of grace differing in substance or but one and the same under various dispensations only one Galatians 3 verses 14 and 16 Acts 15 verse 11 Romans 3 verses 21 22 23 and 30 Romans 4 verses 3 6 16 17 23 and 24 Hebrews 13 verse 8 well then do not the Sassinians err who maintain a substantial and not an accidental difference between the Old Covenant and the New? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because in both the covenants there is the same promise of grace concerning remission of sin and eternal life, freely to be given to believers for Christ's sake, Genesis 3, verse 15, where the seed of the woman is promised to bruise the head of the serpent, in Genesis 17, verse 7, it is said, I will be thy God and the God of thy seed after thee. In Genesis 22, verse 18, it is said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In John 3, verse 36, it is said, That believeth, he that believeth hath everlasting life. In Acts 15, verse 11, it is said, But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Second, because one and the same faith and obedience on both sides required, walk before me and be thou perfect. Genesis 17, verse 1, and Mark 1, verse 15. Christ says, after he came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator Question 1 Did the Son of God, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, and with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance? Yes. John 1, 1 and 14, 1 John 5, 20, Hebrews 2, 14 and 16, and 17, Luke 1, 27, 31, and 35. Well then, do not these heretics called Marcionites and the Anabaptists err who maintain 
that Christ is not a true man, but only the appearance, shape, or form of a man? Yes. Do not likewise the Manichaeans err, who maintain that the body of Christ is not the substance of the Virgin Mary, but a heavenly body brought from heaven to the womb of the Virgin? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because Christ is said to be made of a woman, Galatians 4, verse 4. Second, because the Word was made flesh, John 1, verse 4. Third, by an induction of the essential parts of a man and sinless infirmities which were found in him. One, he was endowed with a rational soul, John 12, verse 27. Two, he had a real and substantial body and denied he was a spirit only, Luke 24, verse 39. Three, Christ did hunger, Matthew 4, verse 2. Four, he was weary and thirsty, John 9, excuse me, 4, verse 6. Lastly, he was sad, he groaned in spirit and was troubled, John 11, verse 35 and 15. He wept, none of which sinless perturbations can agree to an appearance, shape, or form of a man. Fourth, because he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, Romans 1, verse 3, and descended of the Jews, Romans 9, verse 5. Fifth, because the promises were made in the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 3. See also Genesis 18, verse 18. Sixth, because he took not on him the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17. Seventh, because otherwise he could not have satisfied in our place the justice of God, seeing it had been unjust for another nature to have suffered punishment than that nature which had offended and sinned. Question two. Are these... Are there two whole, perfect, and distinct natures in Christ, the Godhead, and the manhood inseparably joined together in one person? Yes. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, and Ephesians 4, verse 4. Well then, excuse me, verse 5. That's Ephesians 4, verse 5. Well then, do not the Nestorians err, who maintain the union between the divine and human nature, not to be hypostatical, but only by way of assistance. And that as there are two natures in Christ, so there are two persons, one proper to the divine nature, another proper to the human nature. Yes. But by what reasons are they confuted? First, because unless Christ, God-man, were but one person, the merit of his death would not be of so great value as to redeem the elect from infinite and eternal punishment, seeing hence cometh all the value and worth of his death, that the same person who was God did suffer and die for us. Second, because otherwise Christ had been swallowed up and devoured by the wrath of God against the sins of the elect, which he himself undertook. Third, because Christ, if he had not been both God and man in one person, he could not have been a mediator, for a mediator must be one. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Question 3. Is the Godhead and manhood in Christ united without conversion, composition, or confusion? Yes. Luke 1, 35. Colossians 2, verse 9. Romans 9, verse 5. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And 1 Timothy 3, 16. Well then, do not these old heretics, the Eutychians, err, that's E-U-T-Y-C-H-I-E-N-S, err, who maintain that as the person of Christ is one, so his nature is made one by a composition or confusion of the two natures together. Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because such a composition is impossible, seeing the divine nature is most perfect and cannot lose any of its own perfection, unless we would affirm the divine nature to be mutable and changeable. Second, because that same Christ, who according to the flesh descended of the Jews, is overall God-blessed forever. Romans 6, verse 5. Third, because this doctrine takes away all means of mediation, 
For by taking away the distinction between the natures, they take away the natures themselves. And so neither could Christ have suffered in our place, because not man, neither could he have given any virtue, value, or worth to his sufferings, because not God. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. Question four. Did Christ endure most grievous torments immediately in his soul? Yes, Matthew 26, verse 37 and 38, Luke 22, verse 44, Matthew 27, verse 46. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that the soul of Christ, even from its first creation, was never affected with any sadness or sinful perturbation of mind? Yes, by what reasons are they confuted? First, because the scripture testifies that his soul was sad unto death, Matthew 26, verse 37. Second, because the apostle John testifies that when Christ saw Mary weeping for her brother Lazarus, he groaned in spirit and was troubled, John 11, verse 33, and John 12, verse 27. Third, because his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death, as was cited before, Matthew 36, verse 37. 26 verse 37 fourth because the same thing is proven from Christ's desertion whereby the actual fruition and enjoying of God's favor as to his sense was interrupted and broken in the midst of for a time but in no wise altogether taken away which made him cry upon the cross my God my God why hast thou forsaken me Matthew 27 verse 46 and Ephesians 5 verse 2 question 5 had the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, fully satisfied the justice of his Father? Yes, Romans 5, verse 9, and Romans 3, verse 25 and 26, Hebrews 9, verses 14 and 16, and Hebrews 10, verse 14. Well then, do not some otherwise orthodox err, who deny Christ's active obedience, so be a part of his satisfaction performed in our place? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the active disobedience of the first Adam made us all sinners. Therefore, we must be made righteous by the active obedience of the second Adam. Romans 5, verse 19. Second, because Christ not only offered himself to the death for us, but for their sakes, that is, for the elect's sakes, he sanctified himself, that is, he gave himself up as a holy sacrifice. John 17, verse 19. Third, because it behooved Christ to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3, verse 15. Fourth, because we stood in need not only of the expiation of sin for saving us from eternal death, but of the gift of righteousness for obtaining eternal life according to that precept and demand of the law. Do this, and thou shalt live. And therefore Christ is not only called our ransom, but the end and perfection of the law to everyone that believeth. Romans 10, verse 4. That is, the aim of giving the law by Moses is that thereby men being brought to the knowledge of their sin should fly for refuge unto Christ and his righteousness as he that hath perfectly fulfilled the law for us. Fifth. Because the passive obedience of Christ was not in of itself merely and purely passive, but his active obedience did challenge the chief and principal part in it. Psalm 40, verse 7. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of thy book it is written of me. With these words our Savior declared his willing obedience to accept of, undergo, and execute his meteorship mediatorship by God imposed upon him. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, he offered up himself a sacrifice for sin, and by one oblation he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 10, verse 14. 6. Because whose, excuse me, because whole Christ was given to us with all his benefits, otherwise if only his passive obedience were imputed to us, it would follow that half Christ were only given, vis-a-vis 
Christ's suffering, but not Christ doing those things which please the Father, taking away our sin and saving from death only, but not bringing righteousness. But Christ was not given and born for himself, but for us, that he might bestow himself wholly upon us by doing for us what we could not do, and by suffering for us what we could not suffer. Do not likewise the Socinians err who maintain that this orthodox doctrine, namely, that Christ did merit eternal salvation to the elect, and hath satisfied divine justice for them, is erroneous, false, and absurd? Yes, but by what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Messiah doth finish transgression, and maketh an end of sins, and maketh reconciliation for iniquity, and shall be cut off, but not for himself, as the prophet Daniel hath foretold. Chapter 9, verses 24 and 26. Second, because his own self bore our sins in his own body upon the tree. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Because he hath reconciled those to God that were sometimes alienated and enemies in their minds by wicked works, in the body of his flesh through death. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. Fourth, because now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, verse 26. Fifth, because he hath given his life an antitype, a price of redemption for many. Sixth, because the prophet Isaiah says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief, and that he was wounded for our transgressions, and that he bare our iniquities. Chapter 53, verses 5, 10, and 11. Question 7. Did Christ in the work of mediation act according to both natures, by each nature doing what which is proper, proper in itself? Yes. Hebrews 9, verse 4, and 1 Peter, verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that Christ is a mediator only according to his human nature? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because it was needful for perfecting the work of the mediator that Christ should overcome death, which cannot otherwise be done than by his divine nature, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, where it is said he was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Second, because there are very many properties of the mediator which cannot in any wise agree to the human nature of Christ, as undertaking and promising that he will raise him up at the last day, whom the Father has given him, John 6, verse 39. Again, he could not lay down his life and take it up again by the, by the alone strength of his human nature, but all these works are proper to the mediator, as is clear from the 10th chapter of John, verse 18. And third, the application of these good things which he hath merited is the proper work of the mediator, which can only be done by the divine nature. Fourth, because Christ is a prophet, a priest, and a king according to both his natures. A prophet, Matthew 11, verse 27, No man knoweth the Father save the Son. A priest, Romans 5, verse 10, Hebrews 9, verse 14. He is a king, Luke 1, 32, all which offices he executes according to both his natures. Chapter 9 of Free Will, Question 1. Hath man by his fall into an estate of sin wholly lost all ability of will to any supernatural good accompanying salvation, so as the natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto? Yes. Romans 5, verse 5, John 15, verse 5, Romans 3, verses 10 and 12, and John 6, verses 44 and 65. Well then, do not the Pelagians and Sicinians err who maintain that the natural man without supernatural and divine grace is able to convert himself to God by his own strength? Yes. Do not likewise the semi-Pelagians, Papists, Arminians, and Lutherans err who maintain that fallen man and corrupted with original sin is partly able to, by his own strength 
the grace of God assisting him to prepare himself and turn himself to God? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Romans 8, verses 7, 9. Because, second, because all that the natural man doth is sin, and cannot in any wise please God, because his works are not of faith, nor to the glory of God, as the law requires. Romans 14, verse 23, Hebrews 6, verse 6, Titus 1, verse 15, Romans 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, Psalm 14, verse 3, Romans 8, verse 8. Third, because a man hath no good in himself, whereby he may be difference from the most litigious, nor any good which he hath not received. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Fourth, because conversion, grace, and salvation are not of him that runneth or willeth, but of God that showeth mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Romans 9, verse 15, 16, and 18. Romans 11, verses 7 and 8. Matthew 11, verses 21, 22, and 25. Fifth, because the conversion of a natural man is the quickening of one dead. Ephesians 2, verse 5. Colossians 2, verse 13. It is a regeneration or bearing again. John 3, verses 5 and 6. It is the creating of a new heart. Psalm 51, verse 10. It is the taking away the heart of stone and the giving of a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. And therefore, as God raised Christ from the dead, so also he raised us from the grave of sin by his own proper power. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15 and 6. Because God converts and calls men, does not by works of righteousness which they have done, Titus 3, verses 4, 6, and 7, but according to his own purpose and grace which is given us in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Question 2. Doth a regenerate man, after his conversion, perfectly and only will that which is good? No. Galatians 5, verse 17. Romans 7, verses 15, 18, 21, and 23. Well then, do not the Puritans, I do not mean the old nonconformists, antinomians, Anabaptists, and many Quakers err, who maintain that all the saints of God are free from every spot and blemish of sin? Yes. Do not likewise some of the Popish Church and Sassinians err, who maintain that some Christians are that are more advanced may come that length to be without any spot, blemish, and act of sin? Nay, that some have really win that length? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because in many things we offend all. James 3, verse 2. Second, because Christ commands us to seek daily remission of sins. Matthew 6, verse 12. Luke 11, verse 4. Third, because there is not one just man upon the earth who doth not sin. 1 Kings 8, verse 46. And Ecclesiastes 12, excuse me, 7, verse 20. Fourth, because there is a continual war between the flesh and the spirit, so that they, namely the regenerate, are not able to do that which they are willing and ought to do. Galatians 5, verse 17. Fifth, because the regenerate are not able to fulfill the first command, namely to love God with all their hearts and with all their souls. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. For we know here but in part, and therefore we love but in part. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9. Neither are the saints free from all those inordinate motions of concupiscence forbidden in the tenth command, as is evident from Galatians 5, verse 17, and from the experience of Paul and of all other saints. 6. Because if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. But when that same apostle says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin, because he is born of God. 
he must mean in the first text of sin dwelling in the best of saints here away and therefore he expresses it which signifies to have sin in the second text he means of sin not only in dwelling but reigning in us and made a trade of and gone about with the full and hearty consent of the will and is expressed by the words to, to work sin and to make a trade of it as men do in any employment they take delight in Seventh, we see it from the grievous falls of the most eminent saints as Noah, Lot, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and the disciples of Christ. Chapter 10 of Effectual Calling Question 1 Are all those whom God has predestinated to life and those only in his appointed and accepted time effectually called by his word and spirit out of the estate of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation through Jesus Christ? Yes. Romans 8 verse 30, Romans 11 verse 7, Ephesians 1 verses 10 and 11, 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 and 14, Romans 8 verse 2, Ephesians 2 verses 1, 2, 3 and 4 and 5, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 6. Well then, do not the Papists, Arminians, and Lutherans err, who maintain that men not elected are sometimes effectually called? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because, say, because faith belongs to the elect only. Titus 1, verse 1. Second, because whom he did predestinate, those only and no other hath he called. Romans 8, verse 30. Third, because though many hear the gospel, yet none believe, but such as are ordained from everlasting life. Acts 13, verse 48. Fourth, because the apostle testifies that the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Romans 11, verse 7. Fifth, because Christ manifested his Father's name to those only whom he chose out of the world and gave to him. John 17, verse 6. Question 2. Doth God, whom he effectually calls, enlighten their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God? Yes. Acts 26, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 12, and Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. Well then, do not the Arminians err who maintain that no supernatural light infused into the intellectual faculty and thereby elevating it is requisite to the saving understanding of these things which are needful in the scripture to be believed and hoped for? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Second, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. Romans 8, verse 7. Third, because all unregenerate men are darkness. Ephesians 5, verse 8. And darkness cannot comprehend the light. John 1, verse 5. Fourth, because Christ says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them to babes. Matthew 11:25. Question 3. Doth God take away from them whom he effectually calls the heart of stone, and give unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ? Yes. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. Philippians 2, verse 13. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. Well then, do not the Arminians err, who maintain that the will of man, when he is regenerate, is not renewed, nor furnished with any new and spiritual qualities? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because Moses says, God shall circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. Deuteronomy verse 6. Second, 
because the Lord says, a new heart, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and cause you to keep my judgments, and do them. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Third, because it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 13. Fourth, because all the faculties of the soul are renewed. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Do not likewise the Arminians err who maintain that when the grace of God begins to make an infall upon the heart in order to a man's conversion, it is indifferent and may be resisted and withstood so that a man may be converted or not converted by it? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because if this doctrine were true, a man's conversion would be of him that runneth and of him that willeth but not of God that showeth mercy, which is contrary to the Apostle, Romans 9, verse 15 and 16. Second, because by this way it should not be God that worketh in us both to will and to do, Philippians 2, verse 13. Third, because by this way a man himself should make the difference, and God should not make one man differ from another, which is contrary to the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Fourth, because if so, a man might glory that he had in himself what he had not received, which contradicts 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Fifth, because it is God that draws a man before he comes to Christ, John 6, 44. Sixth, because conversion is a new creation, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Seventh, because it is a resurrection from the dead, Ephesians 2, verse 5. 8. Because conversion is no less than to be born again. John 3, verse 3. This ends tape number 3 of Truth's Victory Over Error by David Dixon. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.